What do you want me to say? That I didn't want any of this to happen? Of course I didn't want any of this to happen, Jean. No one ever wants anything to happen. Things just happen. The world just happens to you. And things keep happening to you. And now I'm standing here and everything is finally still. And all I can think is... Hello, Jay. Hi, Kirsten. How are you today? Uh, I'm pretty good. Welcome. I was gonna. I was waiting for you to say, it, but I'll say. It. W- welcome to the Marmoset Chronicles: A Personal Retrospective. We're here to do it. We're here to. <laughs> we're here to thing, do it. Jay. We're, we're here to to talk about the final uh film in Laz Batillo's epic epic saga. Yeah, like Laz Batillo's litigation of his own life on screen for all of us to watch, whether we fucking like it or not. Yeah. This is, like, it for these movies, and in some ways, this is it for Laz. In a lot of ways. I mean, well, you know, I I, I just... We can talk about that up front. How immediately he recused himself from the public eye, even, you know, like, he did not show up at the red carpet for this movie. He was allegedly supposed to, but just didn't, and no one would really talk about why. And it's always been very much, like, the cast and crew, Mm -hmm. it sounded like, supported him in that endeavor and probably knew it was gonna happen. But, like... Yeah, he immediately recedes Mm -hmm. out of the limelight. And there was also, there was, like, reactions to this movie and consequences to this movie for Laz personally and on a professional level that he Mm. has just never really given himself the chance to respond to. Yeah. Which is, um, interesting. And, I mean, kind of terrible, honestly. Like, I, I, I feel like we've been robbed of other great Laz Patillo media. However, we've ro- robbed that media by Laz, so I guess I can't be too mad about it. Th- that's that's the thing, is, like, I, I would almost disagree with saying it's unfair to Laz, because he, you know, obviously, I, I think I think over the course of this series, we have done an excellent job of painting why he, why a man would disappear and want to disappear after making the movies that we have spent eight episodes talking about. Yes. I think that is very, like, he has, like I said, litigated. Like, he has, he has brought out every aspect, or not every, but a lot of aspects of his life and his psyche mm-hmm. on screen to such a degree that, of course, you'd probably never want to be fucking seen again. But at the same time, you know, he could come out and respond to those things if he wanted to. I, I don't think it's unfair against him. I think it's he does not care at this point. Yes. But honestly, part of me hates that more because I wish he cared. I wish Lazarus yeah, sh- oh, yes. cared more. I agree. Because I think this world deserves a Laz Patillo who cared more. Because we're at mid to the end of the 80s now. And I wish that he could have found in him in this movie this, like, anger that he had in in movie six. Sure. I wish he could have found that now and put some of that into this movie. Because I... I think Laz Patillo would have been way more comfortable in the 90s. And, <laughs> well, I, I, I think he would have. I think that that if Laz Patillo were, were to make, in some alternate universe where Laz Patillo made another movie and it came out in, like, 94, hmm. I think the world would have gone batshit bananas for it in a really, in, in a way more positive way than they reacted to this movie and his last couple. Right. Um, I can see that, I guess. I my, my question for you, do you think that anger from the sixth movie is the thing? I, I, I think if you want to talk about things he could have recaptured for the final chapter in this saga, I, I guess I'm kind of split on whether hating the 80s would be the thing I would want to come back in full force for the mm-hmm. final movie in a series that started at the tail end of the 60s. You know what I mean? Yes. Like this that that movie was about that. The 6th movie was about that. This series as a whole mm-hmm. unit as a complete meta text is not about that. Yes. Not wholly. And so I, I almost feel like if too much of that anger had been channeled into this it I don't know if it would have been a worse individual product for it, but it would have been maybe a worse cap to this whole series for it. Well- I agree with you, and I'm going to rephrase my point slightly because I think it came off the wrong way. What I meant by that is I, this movie, in a lot of ways, this movie's a masterpiece. This movie's really, really good. This is also mm-hmm. the movie of a man, like, created by a man who is so burnt out. Yeah. And he is yeah. burnt out to the point 
that he doesn't, like, he cares about this story, but he doesn't really care about anything else anymore. He certainly doesn't care about the people watching it. I mean, he's, you know, he has stopped caring as much about the fans for a while now, Mm -hmm. but he certainly doesn't care about how it's perceived by, I mean, no, that's not fair. He cares about how it's perceived by his audience, but he doesn't really care about making them leave the the theater feeling good. Yes. And to be- Which is fine. Yes. But the way that manifests, I, I don't know. But I would love to have lived in a world where this movie, instead of being like the final spark on something burning out, would have been that moment of catharsis that mm-hmm. Diagnosis Aquamarine was. Yeah. That, you know, I don't think the audience gets much catharsis from movie six, but I think he did. I think he yeah, felt no. good about that movie. Oh, definitely. So, definitely. And that is something you want, right? You want to see an author satisfied by their own creation. And I think that's why you and I both like Six to a pretty good degree mm-hmm. is that we can see that. Even if that preachiness that comes out with Georgie in that movie isn't the most entertaining thing to watch, we can both see what's behind it. Yeah. And that there is some genuine earnestness behind it. Yeah. And for Christ's sake, if you don't have that, then what are, what are we doing here? Yeah. And that's not to say that this is devoid of that. It's not. No. But it, all right, so we should can we get into it yes, a little bit yes. into the movie itself? I want to preface it with this because you because like I feel like in the last couple movies we've danced around each other's feelings of it. I think we both like this movie. Yes, I think you like the ending of this movie, and I still do not quite know where I land on it. Okay. Um, and and, and, and you know it makes sense that a man creates an eight movie series and makes an ending that not everyone is going to be like, yeah, that was the right one. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's too big for that. There, there is no such thing as the perfect ending to this series. I genuinely, I genuinely believe that. Yeah, and I think that's true for any big, big sprawling story. Um, and to be honest with you, and we, you know, we we don't have to jump right to it, or we can. I I still don't entirely know where I land on the end of this movie, I, if I like it or not. I think. That the symmetry of it sells it for me. I know that you think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you think that it leaves a lot of things too implicit. Like, it makes the audience almost do too much work, but not like it's trusting its audience. Like, like the movie isn't doing the work it should be. Yeah, like... Yes, and I have no problem with an ending that leaves a lot of things implicit. Mm -hmm. I think... Most of my favorite works of fiction leave a lot of things implicit. A lot of things I've brought up loving on this podcast do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I guess th- there's a line between implicit and I don't want to say lazy, but feeling like there's stuff left on the cutting room floor. And I guess I feel a little bit like there's ideas left on the cutting room floor. Okay. I feel like there there are things that the end of this movie leaves implicit that earlier parts of the movie seem to care more about setting up with the expectation of some kind of payoff. And maybe the mm-hmm. denial of that payoff is part of the point of the movie. I'm okay with that. That's one of the, that's a point for it. But it's just, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I'm describing that and that sounds all well and good, but also there's just other stuff about it that I, it's constantly wrestling in my head whenever I try mm-hmm. and really decide whether I think it's good. Well, I love the last shot of this movie. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of how I feel about the movie as a whole is honestly colored by how much I love this last shot because it's such perfect. Like I said, it's such perfect symmetry to the first fucking shot in the movie where you cut to black and you think the movie's over. And then you have that gravel, uh, like footsteps on gravel sound. And then like right back to the first shot, that silhouette that, uh, and Georgie walking in profile, walking in the same direction as in the yep. Phantom of the Wren, and then this, but but it's closer, and we can only see him, and then there is this slow, deliberate pan out, and we see that there's something behind him, and then he stops, and he turns around, and it's a mirror image of him, and yep. then they stare at each other, and there is this long, lingering moment, black. Three more footsteps, done. That symmetry kills me. And it so the whole the whole story, there there's this the whole and I mean like the eight movie series, like the eight movie story, there's this 
sense of like fleeing and running and pursuit and Georgie's always moving but we know like you can kind of tell that he's not going towards he's going away right and the other plot elements sort of introduce different quote-unquote pursuers but we don't really find out what Georgie's running from we don't find out why he you know was in the middle of nowhere and entered that town in the Phantom and the Wren and then we have this moment where he turns around and it's just him. And I remember the first time I watched that and like, not the first time I watched it, like, and just literally, but the first time I watched it and like understood it. And, you know, I was in like high school and it just, it just really hit me. And I it came at just the right time in my life when like that kind of message as sort of, clunky as it can be really spoke to me but Mm -hmm. the first time I watched it and I got it and I just started bawling my eyes out (laughs) because we're right back in the beginning and we kind of have our answer but we also kind of don't have our answer right like no one steps out and says okay this is what the other Georgie is like is it you know fuck man this movie and the previous movie are very much of a pair in terms of, you know, that what uh, th- that heightened sort of almost art house-ishness to yes. them. Yes. Uh, which we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and you know, the, the common theory is that... So, okay. 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 <laughs> Sorry, I'm collecting some thoughts. Collect your thoughts. We, we can come back to the topic of that last shot, because I, I agree with you, it's a beautiful shot, and the this is the other thing I've always been so torn on. Okay. On one hand, I think that, um, I, I, I think that, you know, I don't want to even say this because I, I, okay. I, I think that Georgie literally running from himself being the implication is super on the nose and honestly kind of goofy on its mm-hmm. own. But I, I, you know, but we have watched this man carry so much with him along that journey. Mm-hmm. A lot, like, it It takes a thing that is goofy in a vacuum and pulls it pulls it with him along that journey out of the vacuum. Yes. Right? Like, <laughs> this is eight movies no. of that dumb thing being pulled out of the vacuum in which it is a dumb thing. And into this context that I do think, beyond all reason, like, Kirsten, this is a thing that would almost never work for me. Yes. But it does kind of work for me here. Enough that I'm on the fence about it. And so that's that's the other thing, is that, like, the idea behind him literally being faced with himself, whatever that manifestation comes from, is so, in my mind, borderline stupid and borderline genius in line yes. with each other. Which is great. Like, that in itself is really cool, right? I, um, that's part of the reason why I love it. I I love it because of how absurd and almost, like, shonen anime simple it is. Right. Which is not a knock against shonen anime, but, you know. I, I know straight, exactly what you mean. Played yeah, straight, I mean, power um, of good and evil. There, the, the, There's... There is smart shonen, and there's also shonen that you don't have to think about too hard. And this is something that comes yeah. from a lot of shonen you don't have to think about too hard. That's what I mean. Sure. Uh, yeah. But that, it, the fact that it's, oh my god, that's the answer? And then you're like, oh my god, that's the answer. Mm-hmm. And that, honestly, I think that like that emotional moment where you're like, this is stupid is almost part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, I, I think that's totally valid because you know, this is the, okay. This final movie mm-hmm. is very much about Georgie getting called out on his bullshit. And yes. it's, it's not on his bullshit, but on, you know, we've talked about those endless shades of gray that he sees everything. In. Yes. Um, we've also, you know, we've also talked about, that constant movement he's going through. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- this almost asks the question with that last shot of, well, that's a stu- is, is, isn't that a stupid thing to be running away from? And yes. the answer is no, because, like, you know, to get a... It, 
to get what I consider a little bit reddit about this for a moment. Like, we could analyze a lot, oh, is that one of, is that other him, you know, another horror from the previous movie? Mm -hmm. Another of the thing that might be Gene, a thing we still never get an answer to? Mm -hmm. If it's been what's, it, has it actually been what's chasing him the whole time? Or is it just Gene taking on a new, false Gene taking on a new form after being false Gene for a while? Like, there, there are a lot of, well, actually, no, 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 things you can do with that. Mm -hmm. But I think it does work really solidly as a mechanism for, like, Look at this goofy thing that you've been running away from for eight movies, you fucking idiot. Like, yeah. th there's a little bit of a wry note of that to it that definitely has merit, for sure. Mm -hmm. I, but I totally see what you mean where it's like, it's so on the nose. Yeah. Um, but I do, I, I kind of like that and also don't. That That's mm -hmm. what divides me, is I cannot decide if I think that works as a mechanism to drive home that point. Mm -hmm. Or if it's... I, I don't know, or if it's just a little too goofy. Yeah. Or So, okay, here's the other thing. This goes back to what we were talking about with leaving things implicit, ver implicit versus leaving things on the table. Okay. I almost feel like it would be a stronger thing if we hadn't literally in the previous movie, and debatably in this one, had an antagonist whose thing is taking on the forms and shapes of different people. I feel like, and I know, like, oh, well, but then it's not established. Da -da 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 -da. Fuck that. This is a series of movies that doesn't really operate on those rules. This mm -hmm. is a series of movies that has things like rooftop ballerinas and a ghost house just come into the story and then leave when it's done. Yes, this is um, a, kind of, this is a universe where things just happen sometimes. Exactly. And so I, I almost feel like this would be more powerful of a final shot if we had never had anything like it in the entire series. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we kind of do is the one other thing that kind of makes me go, nah. like, I don't hate it. I, I don't. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's missing a tiny bit of that power mm -hmm. for the fact that it relies to any degree on anything we've seen before. Yeah. And I understand. I can understand that like very strongly. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I something I think this movie does very well is that mm -hmm. it's it ties up a lot of plot threads, but it isn't a tie up movie. Not at all, which is good. Yeah. It, it is its own thing. The way it carries out its own thing is probably more reliant on the other movies than a lot of movies in this series. Are, but it's the last one. You have to expect that. Also, contrary to what I just said about other stuff, I think the fact that the previous movie also relies on a lot of things from earlier movies makes that makes the sort of echo of that in this feel a little more welcome in a way. Yes, and you know we also bring back the kind of like ground, really super grounded sense of place here. This is um, most of this movie. Yeah, that takes place in the now and isn't done through flashback or weird mindscape things is Georgie walking through a town. Yeah, that that is something I think is really interesting about this movie. So with the pure purgatory with the purgatory bureaucrat okay. With, with with the purgatory bureaucrat, we had a very uh, not over the top, but probably one of the most I don't know flashy, fast paced, relatively speaking, ones of these movies. Mm -hmm. This final one is a lot quieter in some places. Yeah, the and scale, calmer. the scale is very small. This is a denouement. Like I, I think that works. I really mm -hmm. like that about this. I th this makes me sound like such a fucking pretentious asshole, but a lot of the time. In bigger stories like this, I sometimes feel like, you know, endings that feel like they have to out-bombast everything that came between them get kind of just, like, goofy and fucking boring for mm -hmm. it. Like, like, that definitely happens. You know, just to use that pop, pop culture example, I think the big ending fights at the end of Infinity War are way more interesting than the way bigger ones at the end of Endgame, in, in Adventure's realm, just because, like... There's something about the need to give that extra bit of bombast to that ending that makes it almost less interesting. And I and I, I like a lot of things that have final acts that kind of divorce themselves from the need to maximize their own scale. I, I think I think it can be a lot more interesting when a final act zooms back in, like you said, is, is focused on a smaller area. This is kind of like in the... Go, go with me here. Kind of in like sure. the Lord of the Rings... 
school of storytelling where we got there, but we're going to spend some time on the going back. And we do get some of the most fascinating character moments in this afterward. And I I think that speaks to something very true about both life and storytelling, that sometimes the real learning moment doesn't come in the action when it's happening. It comes in, like, the quiet shell shock afterwards. And this is kind of that quiet shell shock moment where it's, it's Georgie and himself and this thing that might be Jean and might not be Jean or the thing that might that isn't Jean might be there and real Jean might also be there and how much of this is him projecting things mentally into the world around him how much of this is real it's really hard to tell but this has like no real like punchy action scenes there are there's some like you know movement scenes and some stuff happens but you know there's no explosions in this movie no not at all And that moment to breathe and exhale is really important to how this eight-movie story works, I think. Absolutely. I'm trying to think of other good fiction that does this. And you're right that Lord of the Rings is a good one. I, uh... I, I, I think, you know, I'm not the biggest Lord of the Rings fan, but I really always love the, um, you know, the hobbits returning mm-hmm. and looking around them and realizing they are no longer part of the world they came from. Yeah. I, I think I think that is one of the best written examples of that in any media I can think of, mm-hmm. even if it's in a canon I don't really care about. Yeah, and, and you know, there's not a lot of action in it, but there's a lot of emo- emotional action in it. And yes. that's, you know... Yeah, that's something a lot of books do. We we've talked a little bit about this, but just the titles of these movies yeah. have very novelish names. Yes. And I feel like, you know, there's a lot of books that they don't have to focus on action as the thing that builds up the climax of the film. And a lot of times when you see adaptations from book to screen, you get a lot of added action mm-hmm. for the sake or or added something that builds up tension more and more and more than a book would necessarily do in the same ways. And, and like that that leads to, you know, a whole other conversation that I think is really interesting where I wonder how much how much Laz Batilla was actually inspired by other movies to go and make his own movies versus how much he was inspired by things he had read. And I, I think it I yes. I would put money on it being more on things that he'd read. And I think this book or wow, fuck. <laughs> and I think this movie is a really excellent um, supporting argument for that. Well, I also think that this movie does something, because you, you mentioned adaptation, book-to-movie adaptations before, which made me think of this. Um, mm-hmm. A problem that a lot of book-to-movie adaptations have is that books allow you to become so ingrained in like the mental landscape of the main character, and that's yeah. so important to things that happen in the book that it's hard to translate that onto screen because, you know, the, we can't see that visually. So, and there are different ways that people deal with this in movies, in movie-to-screen adaptations. So, for instance, do you, know, you know Die Hard is, was originally a book? Yep. Yeah, I've never read it, but yeah. Okay. I haven't read the whole thing either, but I've read parts of it. The main character in the Die Hard book is a very, like, cerebral kind of thinking-to-himself-constantly-and-quickly thing. But, and the mm. way that they put that on screen is they had the character talk out loud all the time to himself. So that's how that, that's why that character does that in that movie. Because all that's uh-huh. going on in his head in the book. So you can do that. You can do what they did with the Hunger Games adaptation, which is just, like, have the character, like, be just this blank slate and you just don't see what's going on in their head. Yeah, basically. Well, yeah, simultaneously that and, yeah, kind of narrated flatly out. But... But even, like, the narrated flatly out bits, like, you're still not getting, like, the the very much mental te- tension that that character goes through in the books. But honestly, if you go back and read that book and imagine what she must look like to everyone else, that's a pretty spot-on performance. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You can do what the first Dune movie did, which is uh, take awful, terrible panning shots of the actors' faces and have them do voiceovers of their thoughts over those terrible panning shots. But I don't want to talk about that movie because it makes me right. sad. Well, or, or, um, have you read The Shining? Yes, I've read The Shining. Okay. I, I think we were both on the same page of Stephen King kind of guy, but 
still, you know, excellent writer in the books that succeed at what they're doing. I think I like Stephen King more than you like Stephen King, but... That's fair. I I, I like Stephen King. I think he... Uh, we don't need to get into this. I also haven't read all of Stephen King or anything. The thing with The Shining, you know, I'd seen the movie a few times mm-hmm. before I'd ever read the book. I only read the book uh, a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Jack Torrance, you know, he's more or less the same character in both texts, but reading the book, you are immediately hit with all these things in his background about how he wound up where he is, um, the stuff with the the kid yeah. he hit and concussed, um, mm-hmm. you know, everything, everything that you learn about his sort of background that got him and his wife and his kid to where they are before they even, you know, before they even go to the hotel, which is a part we don't see in the movie. But none of that feels out of place to who that character is in the movie. Yeah. And what's done there is, you know, Stanley Kubrick took all of that knowledge about who that character is in the book and decided what stuff needed to actually be told to the viewer, either through dialogue or through actions, and what stuff could just be something that, you know, maybe Jack Nicholson knew... Yeah, but in, in, in internalized in terms of how he played that character, but that you didn't need to talk about outside. Yeah, but then when you go and read the book, you can go, oh, it makes sense that this guy would be like that. Um, another example, I just recently read American Psycho, which is a especially weird book to read in 2020 for a lot of reasons. <laughs> um, but American Psycho, you know, the movie American Psycho is. It's about watching rich sociopaths work in their element and live in their element, and one particular rich sociopath who is more than that, who has some other stuff going on. The way his narration is in that book, (laughs) it's a good book, I need to clarify that before I say this. You know, I, I, I hope you haven't ever subjected yourself to reading Ready Player One, but do you know about how Ready Player One is written? Yes. I Um, where it's... Just him being like, and then I got in my replica of a spaceship they had in the background of Firefly, and I named it after uh, Lola Rabbit from, yeah, whatever. Um, The way American Psycho is narrated is like if a billionaire did that, but telling you about all the fancy appliances he owned. Got it. Like, there's literally chapters of that. that, But, and so then, I'm realizing I'm dragging this out. You read all that, and then you watch that movie, and you can, like, kind of feel that narration happening in the way that that character in that movie is acted out. And it's those kinds of adaptations and that kind of very careful thinking about what kinds of a character's... What parts of a character's internal dialogue need to be brought into the external and what don't. And I think that is something Laz Patilla has always been really good at. And it shines here really well with everything in this book. Yes, and that was kind of the point I was coming around to, that the the other way you can... (laughs) do a book a book to movie adaptation is take that those internal moments that the character has them and externalize them somehow. I really apologize for taking a 10 minute detour. It's on totally this point. fine. I we got no, you you absolutely helped me build that point. Um okay. where you know it it's about externalizing internal moments. And so we're walking through this town and we're you know talking to people and we're dealing with little problems but really we're we're walking through Georgie's head mm. and we're and Georgie's talking to other people but Georgie's also talking to himself because you know the 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 whole the main drive of this movie is he's just trying to find and return something yeah it is an object it is in a package you don't find yep. out what's in the package it's all very pulp fiction by with that i mean pulp fiction is very much like very much took that beat from this movie. Um, yeah. You don't find out what's in what what is what's in it, but he needs to find it and deliver it. And everything else just kind of happens the way things happen in these movies, except it all feels different. Yeah. How exactly does it feel different? Because Blas Patillo is a goddamn wizard with tone. Yeah, exactly. It's. It's soundtrack tone. I feel like we haven't talked a lot about the soundtrack of these movies, oh, but so audio, or even just the, like, audio engineering of them, but that stuff helps influence that tone. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so much that goes into the architecture of what makes this... It's not the same town from the first one or anything, but it's kind of a similar space, you know? Yeah. It's a similar kind of space. It looks like it could even be, like, a neighboring town or just, you know, a similar kind of place. Yes, yeah, so though time um, is obviously passed. 
Yes, definitely. Ooh, those little uh, those little shots at Reagan in, in the background televisions. That's fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Th- that stuff's really good. Uh, you know, music people are playing. People walking around with like boomboxes that are playing very like appropriate music mm-hmm. at a couple points. Little things like that. Um, <laughs> there's uh, Laz's little uh, final rebuttal against George Lucas where there is a kid playing with some Return of the Jedi toys and they get run over by a car. <laughs> yeah. Hey, remember when that was a lawsuit? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I do. That was, um... Of all the things... <laughs> let's let's attend the early point, earlier point there. Laz Matillo, yeah, you know... This movie comes out, he starts to, you know, disappear from the world, briefly comes back to settle that lawsuit. To settle a lawsuit then disappears with back. George Lucas. Is that, uh, not, is that not the most 70s and 80s thing that ever happened? Like, that whole beef is just the, whole, the two decades encapsulated. Because it's two very creative men who had two very different mm-hmm. ideas for a series of movies that went in two totally different directions and inf- were very influential in totally different movie spheres. Yep. And we just cap it all off with a... F- with, with a s- and it was a stupid feud that nobody liked. <laughs> nobody cared about... I mean, okay, no, the paparazzi or whatever cared about it for sure. But, but it was a stupid feud. Nobody cared about it. And then it ended with a stupid lawsuit that also everybody hated. It was dumb. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it's really like yeah, defamation via toys. It's it's very funny. Like by that logic, think about what Ryan Johnson and J.J. Abrams could get into with the new trilogy legally if they wanted to. Anyway, uh, last thing I want to do is talk more about that. I do want to ask you how you feel about Gene in this movie. We talked about mm-hmm. him, you know, in a couple contexts here, but like he is. He doesn't become a villain, obviously, and he doesn't, like, this is the one where, whether he is really him or not, either he or the him he is trying to play finds out in no uncertain terms that Georgie killed his bro- his long-lost brother yes. in the first movie. Yes. He, that, that Paul Harris is, you know, Paul Harris's blood is on Georgie's hands. That is a thing that was not known and comes out near the end of this movie. I, I like that, you know... In a worse movie, they could have taken his reaction to that very over the top. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, you find out that a person you've become really good friends with is responsible for your brother's death. I don't know if you can respond to that over the top, per se. But, you know, so, something that would feel not tonally right for the way that information's presented. Yeah. And the way that these two men have, you know, become friends and journeyed together for a while. Mm-hmm. I, I Personally, I like that what we get from him is this, you know, this long conversation with, you know, the, 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 the line you gave at the beginning. It's them, it's them having, not, not even a fight, but just like, just a verbal fight that lands like punches. That's the thing, is like, we were talking about action. There is a lot of verbal action in this movie that feels like people punching each other in the fucking teeth. Yeah, it's almost like a courtroom drama. Y- yeah, kinda. It, it, it's... <laughs> 12 angry men, but really just two angry men. <laughs> um, yeah. 12, 12 angry men and 11 of them are other Georgies. Yeah. Sorry, I'm really satisfied with that joke. <laughs> okay, that's stupid. Don't talk to me or my 11 other personalities ever again. <laughs> that's it, Kirsten. We just... Hear that? We just peaked. <laughs> The show can never be better than this. Fuck. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. I, I, I like that it is, you know, it's not him going off and, like, buying a gun to kill Georgie with. It's him going off and encountering, you know, disappearing from the movie for a little bit. Not even long, like, like 15 minutes. And then coming back when, when you know, coming back as Georgie is getting this package. Mm-hmm. And kind of just saying, like, I'm mad at you in ways that I can't articulate. That That's another thing. Gene knows what's in that package. Gene has been told before the movie starts what's yes. in that package. So that that's something else I like is that, you know, we're not just told that one character wants it. We're told that our two through lines in the movie know why this thing is important. Yes. And we only get what we get of it through, you know, the edges. But so, you know, he comes back, he encounters Georgie, he kind of says, I, I don't feel like I can 
it, it's not a not in good conscience conscience thing, but it is. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's implicitly that where he's like, I, I don't feel like I can let you have this, and they they face off. They kind of have a little sparring match. You know, Georgie gets away, and that's kind of the last we see of Gene. They have a cool, brief, like, sort of sparring match on a really beautiful bridge that they found, oh. I believe, somewhere in northern Vermont is where this movie's uh, filmed so in, fun fact. beautiful, and the foliage in the background, and that one aerial yeah. shot. Jay, that, you know what aerial shot I'm talking about. Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh. Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it's funny you mentioned that. So, yeah, I, I, um, I was thinking the other week about aerial shots like that and how cool they are. Mm-hmm. I was watching... A movie the other week called The Witches of Eastwick. Did I tell you about this movie off the air? No, but I feel like I've heard of it. Uh, okay, so it's a George Miller movie, the the Mad Max guy. Uh-huh. It's the movie he made directly after he made the first three Mad Maxes. Okay. And it is, it is Cher and two other really well-known actresses from that era whose names escape me because I'm terrible with actor names, and Jack Nicholson. Okay, yes, I've heard of this movie. Okay, yeah, it... it the opening of that movie has a... It's in a small town in, you know, in... in It looks like rural Connecticut or something. And it's, it starts with this huge, you know, aerial shot of this town with all these beautiful, luscious trees and this church. And it's starting to zoom in. There's the school. like and, and it made me realize that is such a, like, potently 80s thing. Yeah. Or, uh, I guess 70s into 80s that we just never get anymore. We never get establishing shots like that and not to be too good old days about this but I really like that and I think they do a good job with those kinds of shots here yes I feel like when you do get them these days it more like in in modern movies you more feel like oh the the camera team had a lot was having a lot of fun with drones (laughs) Uh, and you know I've watched some movies where it's like okay like this shot exists because the camera crew got their hands on a drone and didn't think they were going to have one uh, and were really, really, really excited about it. Yeah. And also, you know, Laz has, like, a fascination with trees as, like, a Mm -hmm. use of imagery in a lot of places. Like... We see that in Diagnosis Aquamarine. We see it in um, in Movie Six. I, I I think he also saw the saw the landscape he was working with and went, oh, I can shoot this in interesting ways. Yeah. And have my my cinematographer who you know did that crazy shit with the mountain in, and the mountain came to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I love saying that title like that. And, and work that similar magic on it. Yes. And yeah, it, it's fucking beautiful. And you know he also he also likes like the uh, we've mentioned this before like. Glass and broken glass, and that comes up here, mm-hmm. too. We get a lot of returns to motifs in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the glass, God, the glass shot in this, Kirsten, yes. it's so cool. The, the, the fucking glass roof that we don't see, but we see the blue light mm-hmm. cast down through it onto the floor. We see this floor, this, like, beautiful marble floor, in this ornate blue light being cast by the sun through this... I, I, it's like a church, but a weird church. There are some, like, in in last fashion, there are some strange structures that you can't quite tell what they're for in this town, yeah. and this weird church is one, where, like, it's the blue against the floor, and then off-screen, someone either leaps or falls through that window. Mm-hmm. And we just watch what that does to the color of the light oh, in the room. So good. How the blue shatters. Which is an amazing callback to Diagnosis Aquamarine. Like, yeah. it's, it's the sense that once again, which, you know, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> that's what I think that's there for. Just because, like, blue is a color he doesn't put a ton of emphasis on a lot of the time, but that was the other time he really did. Yeah. Th- that is a really cool motif, a really cool visual thing that kind of signifies, I don't know, that once again some point of no return has been crossed, right? Yeah. Or maybe even that even that something cyclical has been moved back to the other hemisphere of the cycle it's on, you know? And that brings us back to the, to this title, this really strange title, because the whole... The whole title of this movie is very long. The whole title is The Marmoset Chronicles. The plot, the paper, and the place we end up. Yeah. And the plot is kind of, you know, I think a callback to movie seven, The Purgatory Bureaucrat. I think the, that was the plot. Yeah. And, and yeah. The plot's kind of the whole movie, the, the all eight movies, right? Like, that's the plot. Yes. Yeah. That, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Okay. Continue. I, I'm curious if we have the same reading on this, so please continue. The paper is, I think, the most baffling part of this title um there are georgie is handed things and papers several times throughout this um and there's that wanted poster motif that kind of comes up 
And I think mm-hmm. I, I think more than anything, it's about the wanted posters. And huh, okay, uh, because you know this this is some guilt about Paul Harris here and Georgie kind of confronting his quote unquote crimes and the place we end up, which is just here. Where do we end up? Where did where did all of these eight movies take us? Just here. Just, you know, Georgie walking away from another weird, sleepy Midwestern town. And that same sound of sneakers on gravel. Those weird custom chucks on gravel. And it's it's empty, but it's like full of emotion. It, it, it's empty in like, you know, it, it's amorphous is what it is. Yeah. It's... It could be anywhere. Like, in, it, there's definitely, in the way that Laz constructs shots and thinks about this movie on a... Vi- or, I'm sorry, about this series on a visual level. Yeah, th- there's a lot of sense of, like, an empty space is an empty space. Kind of regardless uh, that's uh, of where it's connected I to. Love- Almost as if it's not connected to anywhere. I love which the way is- you said that. An empty space is just an empty space. Yeah, right? Like, it is... It, it, like, and that feeds the ambiguity of the world they're yeah. in, you know, the sort of, like, time brokenness of all of it and everything else. The sort of feeling that... And I love... I'll say this, too. I love that the never explicitly said but pretty much communicated thought that there is something, you know, out of alignment with the organization of the universe of this series. Yeah. It's never explicit... Like, it's it's established in that last movie and only ever really brought up again in how this town feels similar and how that last shot looks like it could be that same ambiguous space from the end of the first movie or any other ambiguous space. Yes. It's, it's all visual. It's all visual and atmospheric and that is fucking radical. And it's so hard to... I think express the idea of a liminal space visually like that mm-hmm. because liminal spaces are something that you have to feel right. Like th- that's the, like it's like 10 30 at night and you're in a rest stop that looks like every other rest stop that you've ever been to, but also none of the rest stops you've ever been to. Right. It's yeah. like, it, it's the target at, at eight 30 in the morning feeling, you know, it, it's times square and vanilla sky. It, yes. it, it's, it's a lot of things and, like that. It's, you know, just, it's harder to convey that feeling through visuals. You you and I are describing it to each other. Yeah, but, and to an audience. And to an audience, and I, I, I hope the audience kind of knows what we're talking about. God, if they don't, this would be a terrible time to realize that. Uh, yeah, I, I, hey, dear listener, I, I hope that you understand me what me and Jay are ranting about here with liminal spaces, but it's hard to pay, it's hard to get that visually. And it, I think that it has a lot to do with, like, color saturation and lighting that this movie just understands and Laz just understands. And the, and I, the, end of, the end of this story is just here, is just this place. Yeah. And this inconsequential errand, essentially, that Georgie is sent on, the consequential conversations he has the fact that he splits up with gene probably indefinitely and then he walks away again except maybe this time he has confronted what he's been running from because this is again the part you don't like as much yeah um yeah well well, that's the other thing is, is you know he does that confrontation the screen goes to black and there's those few more steps are those steps towards or away Yes. Yup. Does he, does he, you know, is that him walking towards the other him? Mm -hmm. Or is it him turning right back around and starting back walking away from him? Do you like that? I actually do. In a vacuum. Yeah, I I think that's, I think that's good. Mm -hmm. Because that's the part that like, and again, I think a lot of this, a lot of my attachment to this movie and the reason I like it so much is because like the, the viewing where I watched it and I got it. Like, I I was very much the, like, you know, kind of too smart for my own good teenager, if that makes sense. Like, I was definitely, like, 14 or 15 when I watched this and understood it and thought I was the smartest person in the world. But also that that idea, I think, you know, spoke to me so much because I think it speaks to a lot of people. Sure. And this this idea of, like, what what is this story, this this eight-movie epic that can 
it, it's about a lot of things, but it's about running away. What were we running away from? You were running away from you, Georgie. Yeah, and that, and you know, he keeps encountering bits of himself along that journey. You know, that's a reason I like Margot a lot in uh, yeah. in that movie is that Margot is a gigantic representation of that. I, I think in a better world, maybe Laz would have even, even done a little bit more with that in that mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, definitely. I also think that uh, is one of the reasons that Gene is one of the best characters in this series because Gene in uh, in that last movie or in um. The, the celebrate it's it's not the things that change it's the things that stay the same like i woke up the next morning and took a shit like any other day that i think that's logica yeah that's logica Th- that one like that cements gene to me as a character who is you know reminding us of that before we get to georgie getting to that the, mm-hmm. the sense that like you can run even if you're running towards a goal or away from an object, but at the end of the day, you're going to continue moving no matter what, even if you feel like you've reached some giant goalpost. Yes. And there's a little bit of a sidetracking, but I feel like in a lot of ways, that's what this movie versus the last one feels like, is the last one feels like this giant, you know, pivotal encounter with this enemy, and this is just Georgie waking up and taking a shit the next day. Okay. Is, is in a lot of ways what this movie feels like. But also, yeah, it has that sense of, at the end of the day, once you've done that waking up, you're still you, and you're still walking away from or towards whatever you were walking away from or towards before you turn mm-hmm. a corner on that walk. Yes. It's just a fucking corner on that walk. Yes. And I, I think another part of this movie, and the reason I chose that quote in the beginning that we started with, is because it's a lot of, like, Georgie really... I think Georgie's biggest flaw as a character is that he truly believes that. He thinks that things just happen to him. He doesn't, for some reason, he does not see himself as an active participant in his own life. And I I say, I say for some reason, we know why that is. We know it's, it's a trauma reaction. It's a trauma reaction to... Um, all the things that have happened with his mother. It's a trauma reaction to the fact that he, he reconnects with his sister and she immediately dies. Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I also think that is a very apt read of how you feel when a lot of very traumatic things happen to you in a very short period of time. You feel like you have no agency over your life. You feel like things are just happening to you. That isn't true, especially for Georgie. Georgie has been at times an incredibly active character. And I think this yeah. movie is a lot of confronting that, and that last scene really kind of puts like a like a cherry on top of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think everything you just said is a reading I also think is awesome. I have one, not counter, but just like additional reading that I have always been fascinated by. Can I tell Hit you what I read the title of this movie as meaning, and then talk about why. Yes, do it. Okay. The plot, the paper, and the place we end up. Uh-huh. I think the plot is, like you said, the plot of both, you know, the, the plot as summarized by Movie 7, but also the plot of the whole series as it has moved forward iteration by iteration over 16 years. I think the, I think the paper is his first draft. Oh my god. <laughs> I think the paper represents Laz Patillo's original plan when he was just starting out making the Phantom and the Rat. And I think the place we end up is exactly that. It's where he ends up with his own series of movies. Holy shit. Jay, is this movie about the writing process? Absolutely. I, I So I think it's about everything you just said it's about. I think it's about all of this. I think it's about everything you just described it being about. And the writing process. <laughs> I, I I think what he's done, and this is like, this movie fucking rules. I know I, I talked earlier about not liking the, the end as much, but like, this stuff is so my shit. It's why I love the media I love is being able to dig in and find multiple readings as deep as everything you just gave and now as deep as this. So, Jay, you the... just fucking blew my mind. I, <laughs> I have never yeah, like... heard... I Somehow, me, the the meta-narrative, meta-narrative person, has never heard of this before. Before, Please expand. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I had seen it one, in a couple places, and it was something I thought about when I saw other people talking about it, but I think it's fascinating as an idea. So, I think, by this point, Laz Patillo is thinking a lot back on his own series of movies. He's, you know, he's much like it's 
it's crazy that you and I are here on the final ep- the final movie of this series of movies we've been talking about. It must have been crazy for him to suddenly realize he's at the other end of a path he started more than 16 years before that. And so I think it makes sense, one, one, I think it makes sense that he would be reflecting on that a lot when he started making this movie. Two, so I think when you look at Georgie and Jean in this movie, mm-hmm. and the reason that they become juxtaposed, and the reason that jo- that Jean becomes, you know the antagonist, is that they represent, I I guess, two different sides of Laz. You could also say two different sides of the audience. You could say a lot of things. I think Georgie in this movie kind of can be viewed as representing the, you know, the movement through these movies as they have happened. Just as, like you said, Georgie feels like he has just walked through time and things have kept happening to him. I think... You could almost read that as Laz Patillo, over the course of writing these movies, changes in what he wants to do with them maybe kind of just happened to him. I I don't know about you, so maybe maybe I'm talking out my ass here. I have had stories that have changed in ways that have felt like that in how I've written them. Like, you'll you'll think you understand where something's going, and then along the way, a new idea or a new way of unfolding your own narrative will just kind of hit you, you know? I, I, I think that reflects very much on Georgie in ways that you've talked about and that we've both talked about. Gene finds out what Georgie did to his brother. That, I think, is sort of like a manifestation of, you know, the, the guilt you feel. Okay, so, we, let, me, let me backtrack. <laughs> so, Gene reacts like that, and then we also have the package. I think the package, and this is this is... This is the part that started this exploration for a lot of people who carry this theory about this movie. Is that the package is kept so ambiguous and that it is just the goal and the object of getting it is the goal through the whole thing. I think the package is sort of representing the idea of getting to the end of the story anyway. Getting to the end of the story as it has ended up. You know, like, who knows if the package was a thing that was written down in Laz's original scribblings of this screenplay of these screenplays but it's here now and so there's this there's this school of thought that like gene kind of represents a side of a creative person's head going like well you don't deserve that if it wasn't part of your original plan and so like the reason he confronts Georgie and the reason stuff that happened at the beginning of that series is why he confronts Georgie kind of represents like a cerebral opposition to changing the end of your own story even if you know that maybe that change is the better change to make and then Georgie wins out about that and he gets the ending anyway and he ends up in that same ambiguous space which I feel like he would have ended up no matter what this movie was about I think no matter how yeah. this movie, no matter what the plot of this movie was, no matter who was in it, it would have ended with that mirroring of that first shot in that ambiguous space, in that space between spaces, because that is, I, I think that space represents beginnings and endings and turning points for Laz. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if Laz Patilla went into making these movies with that first and last shot planned out and maybe not so much everything else. Yeah, and, and so, you know, the road there changes and changes and I, I think the ambiguity of that package kind of links to the ambiguity of not always knowing what that road is even if you know that destination and then yeah and yeah and I, I think Gene kind of awakens as a representation of guilt over that much like Georgie is racked with guilt I think Gene kind of represents Laz's guilt for the things he's changed along the way I'm like Like, you can't see me, Jay, but I'm, like, staring at a wall with my fist in front of my face right now because this has, like, kind of blown my mind. I don't know why I've never come across this reading before, but hell yeah, that's all I can say. Right? It's, you know, and and I I think there's a million other readings of this movie in this whole series, but I... You and I are both it's meta narrative horrors when it's meta narrative like this when it's when it's very clearly the creator meditating upon mm-hmm. everything that he's done to get him to a point. Oh my god, I, I I think it's fascinating. I think it is this whole series of movies is a look into Laz's brain at all these different points at the these eight separate points, 
And so, of course, this last one would be like this. Of yeah. course, it would be him fighting out kind of imposter syndrome almost with the the road that's brought him there. Yeah. And I, I think that, like, the way I, I, you know, sort of I as a creator have always sort of described this. And, you know, you, you say this kind of thing to people sometimes and they look at you weird, but then you say this to other people and they're like, I totally fucking get it. But I say, okay, so a piece talks to you and it tells you when it's done. Yeah. And sometimes, so like, I'll be like, okay, so I don't know if this is done yet because it hasn't told me it's done. And sometimes I just need to sit on it for a day or so, and I, or sometimes longer than that. And I go back to him like, this is done. The, the piece wasn't telling me it wasn't done. I was telling myself the piece wasn't done. The piece was telling me the whole time that it was done. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes you go back to it and you're, uh, and you're like, you're right. The, this is just the, the piece was just telling me it wasn't done. And then you change it and then it's better or it's not. And that's how the creative process works. Yeah. You have absolutely blown my mind. Laz Patillo is a fucking genius. <laughs> I can't believe we went through all eight of these movies, Jay. Yeah, I... I... How do you feel at the end of this? Uh, we're not we're not done. No. I should make that super clear. And we'll we'll talk more about that in a minute. But how are you feeling right now? Um kind of like weirdly reflective, I suppose, but also like I have I feel like we've gone on like a journey with this with these movies over the past couple weeks. Uh yeah, totally. we also through like just you know kind of no fault of our own we ended th- this podcast ended up uh lining up very neatly to a lot of turmoil in the world so i am kind of like reflecting uh, reflecting back on that as well but i feel like i love these movies i feel like i i came into this series loving these movies and i'm leaving it loving them even more yeah i i i came into this loving them but ready to if necessary you know get it, like if necessary poke some holes where there are holes to be poked, you know, like make note of some flaws where they are, make note of things that are problematic in them mm-hmm. or whatever. And I feel like we have done that where needed, but also overall we've we've just had so much to say about why these things succeed. And fuck do I hope we've done them justice as best we can. You know, like we're just two 20-somethings sitting here 50 years. It is 2020, 50 years ago. Laz Patillo started work on this. Or, I'm sorry, 50 years ago, Laz Patillo finished work on the first one of these. And now here we are, two chuckle fucks behind microphones, five decades later, doing what we can to just represent these and not try and hit them beat for beat, but just talk about why we care, you know? Yeah, and... And I think we've done a great job at that. I hope so. I Um, I fucking hope we have. And I hope that, like, it's coming off as... Because a lot of people have a lot of things to say about these movies. And not everything that we've said about these movies is new. Honestly, throughout this whole thing, I was like, we don't we don't have that many hot takes, Jay. Not It's kind of hard to hot take the Marmoset Chronicles unless you're, you know, inflammatory film review genre where it's just like, take a popular thing and say it sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cinema Sins or the Nostalgia Critic back in his heyday or whoever, yeah. Sure. Uh, I think that this... I feel like we've represented ourselves very well and our thoughts on these movies. And uh, nicely done, Jay. This was a... Nicely done, Kirsten. This was a bigger undertaking than I think either of us were expecting. Absolutely. And uh, what makes that even more terrifying is that it's only growing. Should we, Should we like, talk... Are, are we done talking about this movie? It sounds so. like we are. I think so. Okay. Should we talk about the amalgam of ideas for where we might go next. Well, okay. Sure, okay. First off... First off, we're doing... We've always planned on doing one more episode as a postmortem. Yes. That... We have that plan. When we started, that was the plan. And we're still gonna do that postmortem. Next time we're gonna talk about, yeah, like, the... the, the oh, An overall look at this series in more depth... In a different light and talking about the cast and crew's journey a little bit after this and wherever that takes us, kind of. Yeah. We've also had some... A, a lot... Kirsten and I love doing this podcast, is the yes. thing about this podcast. And uh, and we, we kind of want to keep doing it. We have, you know, 
there's a lot of other media ancillary to this series of movies Mm -hmm. that can still be talked about and that can add more context to things. Mm -hmm. Like, just for example, you know, uh, on our network, on the Orange Groves right now, uh, over at Nervous Rex, which is their Evangelion podcast, they have finished their rewatch through of that whole show. And now what they're about to do is watch some other things that that director has made to, like, recontextualize some of his filmography. Uh Talking about other things around it, right? And and there's... With these movies, there's so much stuff written about it. There's so much academic stuff, um, pop culture stuff. We can go into other things, and we're definitely thinking about doing that. Yeah, we're, we're, we are... We have some ideas of other things around the existence of these movies that we think would... If you've been... If you'd enjoyed listening to the last nine episodes of this, that hopefully you'd also enjoy. But also, we want to hear what you would want to hear about. Like, obviously, we're two pretty goddamn big fans of the Marmoset Chronicles, but we're not the only fans of the Marmoset Chronicles in the world. There's several others in the uh, the Discord channel, in the Orange Grove server for this. Um, there's people who've talked to us on there. there. There are a lot of people who like this canon, this IP, for a lot of reasons. And we would like to hear from you about what you'd be interested to hear about around these movies and, you know... What do you want us to talk about next, dear listener? The future is at least partially in your hands. Because that's how podcasting works, right? It's like us talking to you and you guys sometimes talking back. Sometimes. There we go. Um, And we we want to hear what you want to hear about next, because we'd love to continue this. Yeah, absolutely. So if you if you have ideas for that, hop in uh, the Orange Grove serve the Orange Grove's Discord for our lovely network that I am always thankful for adding us to. It's been so cool. Um, we have a channel in there for this podcast for the Marmoset Chronicles. Uh, hop in and tell us what what we haven't talked about around the existence of these movies, whether it's an actor's career around them or an ancillary thing or, I don't know, merchandise, whatever it is. Tell us about your weird bootleg action figures, guys. I really want to hear about them. Let, talk to me about the weird Chinese bootleg Super Nintendo game you found once. But yeah, or talk to us on Twitter, wherever. But yeah, next week we're doing a postmortem. Is that it? I think that are we are we it. done right now? For right now, might be for I think that might be it for this uh <sighs> series for this movie. I I think we both went on some impressive rants this time. I'm really happy with yeah. I'm really happy with what we've done here, Kirsten. Me too, Jay. Kirsten, if people want to hear us being happy about more things we've done and unhappy, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me at Twitter at Kirsten M Writes. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram at Kirsten Meanwrites. Uh, the Twitter is a lot more nonsense. The Instagram is a lot more uh, kind of serious-ish talking about poetry and books. Um, I'm trying to use both more as I've uh, suddenly come upon more free time than I've had in over a year. Um, <laughs> uh, hey, Jay, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me at Twitter at Extreme Salsaing. Um, okay, you can find me on Instagram too at Extreme Salsaing if you want. I don't post a super interesting bunch of stuff on there really, but it's there. You can find me on YouTube at Hi I'm Jay. Um, you can find me on Twitch.tv slash Extreme Salsaing. I I want to get back into doing some more streaming. I kind of I moved recently in the last couple weeks, so it's been difficult to find time to do streaming but i want to get back in the saddle with it and that's where you can find me i've already plugged the orange groves but i will if you are already join the orange groves discord server uh if you can support the orange groves on patreon i don't know if we ever said this but patreon money from there was what helped us get our beautiful art which was done by Alyssa krasnanansky who is fantastic and has done a lot of other uh really great art for the network yeah i don't know like go support the orange groves it fucking rules and we're very happy to be part of it Shit, man, I guess that's it. Next time we are doing a post-mortem on kind of what we just did here with a little how are you feeling and ask a big how are you feeling (laughs) (laughs) to each other for an hour. And we talk about why someone probably should have asked Las Patillo how he was feeling at any given time in his life. Yes, we will talk a lot about... The meta narrative outside the meta narrative, which is just to say the life of Las Patilla. And that is all for this week, guys. Have a great one. Don't forget, always have a rope ladder. Always have a rope ladder.
Hey, Don. You know what's better than a psychosexual show about an anthropomorphic introverted wolf in love with a promiscuous rabbit who also might want to eat her? No, I, I don't. Nothing? I mean, unless there were a podcast talking about a show about an anthropomorphic introverted wolf in love with a promiscuous rabbit who also might want to eat her, and was hosted by a lovely woman like myself and her dear childhood friend. I can't think of anything more derivative. Shut up! I mean, you're right. Come join us on the Cherryton School Report, a podcast about the anime Beastars. A show about, well, you get it. Fur, fun, terrible animal puns. Part of the Orange Groves Podcast Network. New episodes Mondays. Beast on! They don't say that. They should. <laughs>